Thanks for listening to Mosaic, a Jesus-centered communities podcast. Our goal is to help people experience a Jesus-centered life. You can find out more about us at welcometomosaic.info. We invite you to subscribe to this podcast as well as rate and review it so others can hear it as well. Enjoy the message. Amen. Well, when the little video bumper played just a moment ago, you uh, saw some of the words in it. It's the language from our core value called the Bible is our roadmap. It's all through 2021. We're going through these core values, kind of centering ourselves on these things that as we embody in our life, and they're more than just banners on a wall, they're more than just language that we use, as as we embody them, it will help us be people who are centered on Jesus Christ. That's where we find life and hope and freedom. It's the way of Jesus that sets us free. And so you saw the language, but let me throw it up on the screen again for those who may not have seen it. What we mean when we say the Bible is our roadmap is this. In a world that is always changing, we build our lives on teaching that never does. We strive to help every person understand and live in the power and freedom that the way of Jesus brings. We are, this is our compass. This is our true north. We believe that there is something unique, sacred, special about the Bible. And so we allow it to teach us always of who God is, of who we are, of what he calls us to be, of how God works, of what we say yes to, of what we say no to. The way of Jesus is the best way because it's the way that God had for us. So the Bible is our roadmap. But it begs the question, why? Why the Bible? Why not any other number of books that could be available to do that or any other voices or any other guides that could do that? Why would we as a church and many of us as followers of Jesus, why would we say, the Bible's it for me? The Bible is the one that guides me. Google did um, something a few years ago, and man, we, we go, you go to any library anywhere across the globe, across our region, across the world, man, you're going to see books sometimes literally from floor to ceiling. It's unbelievable the volumes that we have. And Google did this thing. They tried to the best of their ability to come up with the estimate of how many different books, how many unique books have been written since the invention of the printing press back in 1440 when Gutenberg uh, invented the printing press. Their best estimate, get this, is 135 million books have been written. We're talking unique volumes. Go to your library at home, go to your library at an office, go to your library in town. Ain't gonna come anywhere close to that. 135 million different books that you could pull off the shelf and you can read. And so the question is, why the Bible? Why do we take this one unique when there's so many options and many of them are self-help, many of them are sacred-oriented or faith-oriented or belief-oriented? Why the Bible? Well, first of all, here's what we know about the Bible. The Bible really isn't even a book. You may not know this, but the Bible is actually a collection of books. It's a collection of 66 books, and we'll put a few points up here for you. It's a collection of 66 books that are all woven in together in one, and these 66 books actually have close to 40 authors spanning across three different languages. The Bible uh, in its original form was written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and in Greek, and it spans three languages that go across 1,500 years of history. 66 different books that were written all over the place across 1,500 years of history. And we weave them all together, and we call it our The Bible today. So the Bible is more than just a book that we pull off the shelf. It's a collection, and the genres of the Bible are so unique. There's history. There's poetry. There's um, books of wisdom. There's books of biography. There's autobiography. There's collections about instruction in life and on and on. There's prophecy in there. And we put this all together, and it's been 2,000 years since its final entry was written. 
2,000 years since anyone pinned something, they put the stuff together, they sew it all together, they make up the Bible. And now, 2,000 years later, generations after generations, languages across the world, there's over 1,000 different languages that have the Bible written in it. Somewhere between four to five billion copies have been printed of it. 2,000 years later, it's the best-selling, best, most printed volume of any, of 135 million. Why? Why the Bible? And here's the thing. Through this series, what we're hoping to do is answer some questions that either you have or maybe questions you should have. Because if we are a church and you are a person that is trying to figure out what is going to guide my life, what is the thing that's the ultimate authority that speaks truth over me, when, when, when this disagrees with this, one of them's got to win. Well, in my life, it's the Bible. If my feelings look different or a different talking head or a voice or a different publication tells me something different, the Bible in my life and in our home, we have that. That's the one that reigns supreme. If that's the case, why? And where did it come from? What about its origin stories? What about the contradictions that sometimes you hear about? Why are certain books, I just said 66, are included in this? Why those and why not others? Who got to make that decision? And who affirmed it? And has it ever changed? And on and on. And so we're going to answer some of those questions that, again, even if you're not asking, maybe we should be. And the reason for that is this. Many of us grew up learning and knowing Bible studies or Bible stories. Most of you, even if you haven't been in church in a long time or you just kind of occasionally attend church, somewhere along the line, you've heard the stories about David or maybe Moses at parting the Red Sea or you've heard about Daniel in the lion's den or you've heard different stories like that, right? You know the stories about the Bible, I'm sorry, in the Bible, but do you know the story of the Bible? We grew up learning the stories in the Bible. Do you know the stories of the Bible? Because here's the key. Understanding how we got the Bible is almost as important as the story itself. Understanding how we got the Bible, the story of the Bible, understanding that is almost as important as the story itself. You say, well, why well, I don't get that. Well, here's the thing. Because if you don't know the story of the Bible, how we got it, how it was shaped, how it was framed, what sits on your lap today or what sits on the app on your phone today, if you don't know the story behind that, it makes it very easy to dismiss the stories that are in the Bible. Conversely, if you can have a strong foundation, a strong confidence in how we got the Bible, and it's like, listen, are there weird stories in there that don't match up sometimes? Sure. But it's, it's a one in a zillion odds that everything could come together like this, that everything would be woven. If I can have confidence in how we got the Bible, the story of the Bible, it's pretty hard to deny the stories in the Bible. And my hope is through this series over the next several weeks, we're going to look at how to study the Bible. We're going to look at the origins. We're going to look at a lot of things that are textual, the confidence we can have, how we can know for certain that the Bible is reliable. We're going to look at all those. And I'm hoping it just deepens your faith. It deepens your resolve and your belief that when the waves are crashing and the circumstances are ugly and when I'm falling apart and when um, I fail, I have something I can anchor myself to, the teachings of the scriptures. So, we're going to start in Luke chapter 1. So if you've got a Bible or you've got an app or you can take a Bible in the rack in front of you there or online, you can do that as well. I'm going to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 1. And I've got a Bible for us here today that I'm going to be reading from Luke chapter 1 today. I've actually really been looking forward to this. How many of you have at your home somewhere a family Bible? at your house, just some kind of family. Yeah, quite a few in this service too. Somewhere around a third or so of us have some kind of a version of a family Bible. I've got two Bibles here in particular. This one right here, this large one, is actually from Bellevue. Our church, Mosaic, is a 
a collection of three different churches that had now become one beautiful family together in Bellevue, which was on this property prior to some renovations and new things being done at the building, did some demo and all. And before they did, they found this Bible. This Bible is from 1869. And when I showed up about three years ago, it was just sitting in my office and I'm like, that is something to keep. That is something so special. 1869, there's a couple family names that I'm sure have gone on into eternity that are in the front here. But what's interesting is looking at this, and then, oh, let me mention this. This is a really special Bible to me as well. This Bible belonged to our neighbor, Lori. Lori passed away a couple months ago. She had a long, chronic illness, just a really difficult journey she had, but sweet lady, and um, as they were going through her stuff, they wanted to give us next door, our neighbor, a Bible. This one's from 1881, her family Bible, and that's a pretty special gift that they've had on for a lot of generations to pass on. And so here I got one from 1869. I got from from 1881. And what's interesting is, is whatever, by the way, did anybody pull out a Bible from the 1800s when I just said you can turn to Luke chapter one? No, but here's the thing. Whatever you did open, the app or the Bible that's on your lap or the Bible in front of you there, what's remarkable is even in a 150 plus year span, what you would read in these pages of Luke chapter one are almost identical to what you read that you have on your lap right now. Some of the English in there is, is old English, like you're reading Shakespeare or something like that. But the language, the principles, the teachings throughout the book is the same. Over 150 years, when printing was kind of primitive and, and families, this might have been the only Bible that would sit in a family's house. It's the same thing with a little more modern language that you have on your lap today. Let me take it a massively large step further, though. What we believe to be the oldest piece of manuscript from the book of Luke it's called the Papyrus 75. We'll throw a picture of it on the screen for you. A scribe back around 170 AD, so we're talking roughly 1,800 years or so ago, about 100 years after Luke actually wrote what we call the Gospel of Luke that's in the Bible now, some scribe sat down and penned, hand-pinned that to pass on to the next generation. This is the oldest piece of manuscript of the book of Luke that we have. And what you have and you hold on your lap today is not translated from these 1800s Bibles and these 1800s versions. The Bible that you have today and I have today is translated from some of these. This, this manuscript as, long, as well as thousands and thousands of others were found in what's called the Dead Sea Scrolls. You may, may have heard of that. Some clay jars in Israel that were found 50, 60 years ago. And in there's all these scrolls. And what we found was what we have on our lap and what you have on your iPad or whatever you're reading the scripture today is incredibly accurate, incredibly consistent with what was handwritten 1,800 years ago. And it's amazing as we go through all of these different centuries and we read these Bibles, the continuity, the consistency of the teaching of who Jesus is, of what the scripture is of the way, the truth, and the life, what God's character and nature is, of what living the way God wants us to live, it's all been consistent whether you were an audience sitting in front of me in 175 AD, 1800 years ago, or today in June of 2021, we are reading the same manuscripts, the same story, which gives us confidence. We're gonna talk a little bit more about that next week and the following week, but it's exciting to think about that, the consistency that we have. This didn't just come off of a bookshelf or didn't just get downloaded from Amazon or something. This is something that has been around for two millennia, and there's a cohesive consistency to it all through it. But in Luke chapter 1, I'll put the uh, 1800s version of it away. In Luke chapter 1, we're going to look, and we're going to start there today, which might surprise some of you, because some of you might say, well, in the beginning, right? Genesis chapter 1. But the interesting thing about the scripture, this is important to note, the beginning of the Bible doesn't begin in the beginning. The beginning of the Bible really begins in first century Israel. 
It's when Jesus comes on the scene. It's when these writers, these people who came in contact with Jesus and people that knew Jesus started to realize, we've heard a lot of stories. We've seen a lot of people come and go. We've seen a lot of people claim to be something that they weren't, and they were executed, and they were just a fraud. There seems to be something different about this one named Jesus. And so they started to record his writings, his teachings, his, his instruction, the stories that he would tell, the interactions he would have, thinking, if this is the legit deal, we need to be able to preserve this for the generations to come. I don't know about you if, you, if you had a family Bible or not. I still remember, still have at home my first Bible that I received as a child. How many of you have still your first Bible from your childhood? Some of you got a little bit more gray hair than me, so that means a lot. So that's, that's amazing that you still have that. And if you don't have your still first Bible, it's a tech age. Some of it looks different. That's okay. I had a little gray Bible. Uh, my first Bible was this genuine imitation leather Bible. That was great. It says that on the back, genuine imitation leather. And, uh, and, and it, how many of you had your, your name put on the front of your Bible when you were a kid? Yeah? Isn't that crazy? Some of you are like, what are you even talking about? Don't worry about it. It was just one of those things that if Jeff Bell lost his Bible and left it in the pew at church, I could find it in Lost and Found, I guess, because we don't do that kind of stuff as much as we used to. But when I was a kid, put that little script of your name on the front there. Um, how many of you um, had like the, the, you know, the red letters, the gold leaf, you would do sword drills. You know what a sword drill is? You know what I'm talking about? Hold the Bible in the air and somebody would say some obscure Ezekiel 1821, bam, and who could ever find it first? We get a piece of gum. Great incentive, great motivation. I was pretty good at the sword drills, to be honest with you. And the good thing about it is I became familiar with where the books of the Bible all were and all that. Um, so many of us said that. In fact, we had a thing at our church where if you brought your Bible at a Sunday school class, some of you grew up in catechisms or Sunday school class, you might know what I'm talking about on that. In our Sunday school class, if we brought our Bible to church on Sunday morning, we got a five-stick pack of dentine gum. Man, I brought my Bible every week. I loved it. That was a great incentive for me to bring my Bible to church, right? So I, maybe you had stuff like that. Oh, it was so important, too, to have the Bible. And you wanted to have a small Bible because of this one, because it was one of those, hey, if you got your Bible and you got a girlfriend, put the Bible in between you because you got to leave room for Jesus. <laughs> How many of you know what I'm talking about? You know what I'm saying? Remember that little? Got to leave the, you don't want one of these big old family Bibles between you. And it was always the, what if I put it sideways? What if I open it halfway? For those of you who know what I'm talking about on that, we have therapy and counseling classes because that messed us now. But that's what, so you grow up and you're hearing all these stories about the Bible and you're learning the verses and you're learning the books and all that kind of stuff and you're learning about Moses and Joseph and Esther and Mary and, and on and on. You're hearing all these stories and you get told over and over, and I grew up in a pastor's home, I greatly appreciate my Bible, my Bible literacy, if you will, because my mom and dad from a young childhood always elevating the value of scripture. My dad's a pastor in Indiana, and I, so I've been around it for my whole life. And what you would basically be told was this. This is the Bible. It's true. Do it. <laughs> this is the Bible. It's true. Just live what it says. And so I grew up in that, and many of us did in all different classes and structures. And it works when you're young, but then you hit middle school, <laughs> and then you hit high school, and you hit being a young adult, and you start realizing there are challenges that don't fit in a nice little box to the little lessons that I was taught from the Bible. You also get taught that there's other questions or other criticisms of, oh, that was in the Bible too, and they didn't teach me. You learn everything else that was in the Bible. All of those, that's what God looked like in the Old Testament? What about this seeming contradiction between this passage and this, and how come they don't? Well, what do I do with that? Well, science doesn't make sense or add up to what this says in the Bible, and what do I do with that? They didn't talk about these parts in church. And it can create confusion. It can create gaps in our life. 
My guess, we don't have any textual explanation of this, but my guess is that's part of why the book of Luke was written. When we look at books in the Bible, especially Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're the Gospels, which means it's the story, the good news of the life of Jesus, these four eyewitness accounts that record Jesus. What we do is often we start getting to here first. We start thinking that's part of the Bible. Man, that's part of that big bound thing that we have, right? But when Luke was written, and we're going to look at this in Luke chapter 1, you need to think more like this. It was just a letter that Luke was scribing to his friend, talking about everything he had seen and experienced and everything that he knew the people around him, his friends had seen and experienced from the life of Jesus. And he was trying to match it up and, help, and, and hopefully it would be helpful to his friend Theophilus. Hopefully it would be helpful to him in his faith journey. Man, isn't that, that's what the gospel's all about. That's what Christianity should all be about. How do I help my friend understand the person that set me free? And that's what the gospel of Luke. So let's not call it the gospel. Let's not think the Bible. It's a letter. Just think about that as we're reading these first few verses. Luke has been so transformed, so impacted. He's just writing a letter to a friend. And my guess is because, and I'll, I'll call it out in a second again, it's a friend who probably knew the Sunday school stories, who knew some of the studies in scripture, but he grew up and he's struggling and he doesn't know where to put it all together. And Luke is like, let me tell you about this one named Jesus. He puts it all together. It all makes sense. He's the fulfillment of everything that the Old Testament had taught us. He's the one. That's what the gospel of Luke was written for. That's part of why we have our Bible. So Luke chapter one, verse one. Luke says this, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. So, so notice right away, many have undertaken to do this. Many have drawn up an account of the story, and he's gonna, it's going to become clear, of who Jesus is. People have already written this, Luke says. But he tells his friend Theophilus, and that'll show up in the next passage here. He tells his friend Theophilus, there's eyewitnesses, I want to be a part of that story as well. What's interesting, you might want to know, is very few cases throughout history are, are, are evident of multiple accounts being told about a, the same historical figure. It's extremely rare. In fact, you think about like pharaohs and emperors and kings, they almost always tagged one person who was the chronicler that kept the historical records of this individual or of his or her reign. They only had one, and there's multiple reasons. One, it was very expensive. There was painstaking work that would need to be taken place. You don't have Wikipedia or libraries to go through with volumes and volumes and, and archives and stories and tape recordings of interviews. It was painstaking work, so it was very expensive to go and track down these eyewitnesses and be a part of the story or find the evidence of it. In addition to that, virtually everybody during this time in first century is illiterate. There's very few people who even have the ability to read. They can't write or read. They can oral tradition. They were passing on stories from tradition to tradition. But very few people had the ability to read. With all the expense it took, all the incredible work it took, and the fact that nobody was going to be able to read it anyway, it was rare that they would have more than one historian or one, more than one chronicler that would keep the story, the chronicles, of important figures. What never happened was some peasant person from a little village called Nazareth, or a little town like that, that had no royalty attached to him. Nobody ever wrote their story. So right here, when you hear Luke saying, many have already done this, I want to add myself to that list. Matthew has already done this. Mark has already done this. Now Luke will do this. John is going to follow suit and do a gospel about Jesus as well. This is pretty unique. It's pretty unusual. Why? 
Because with Jesus, it was different. They started realizing there's been a lot of people on the scene. There's been a lot of people who've said stuff. And like I said before, they would find they were frauds. But there was something about Jesus that was different. And they felt, we have got to capture this story and pass it on to generations to follow. So he says in verse 3, Luke says, with this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. Let me pause there. What we find out in the book of Colossians in the New Testament is that Luke is a, do you know what his vocation was? A doctor. Some of you know that. Yeah, Paul is a friend of Luke's, the apostle Paul who writes a lot of the New Testament. Luke is a doctor. And so he is very meticulous, very detail-oriented. So he says, I have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. By the way, I believe Luke was a skeptic. I believe that investigation was not just because he wanted to pass it on to his friend. I believe he was one of those, this, could this be too good to be true? Because we don't have an indication that Luke was, um, uh, was in relationship with Jesus, was like a peer or a friend, like the disciples were sitting around the table. We don't see that in Luke. So Luke's getting it secondhand from all these people, his friends, Peter and John Mark and James, the brother of Jesus and other. He's getting all this. And he's investigating all of this, all of the detail from the beginning, because he's a doctor. The science leads him to the truth, right? And so he's investigated all this, and I too decided to write an orderly account, Dr. Luke, for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that, and here's his purpose, why the book of Luke was written for us, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. I want you to know that all those lessons And all those laws or those stories that were passed on from generation to generation when you were a kid in Sunday school, it wasn't just to be a collection, a book that would sit on your shelf and gather dust. I want you to know that there's truth to them. There's life that's found in them. That you can have confidence and certainty of the things that you've been taught. You can believe. And the one that I'm going to tell you all these details and stories in this letter that I'm writing to you, my friend Theophilus, He's the fulfillment of it. You've heard all the stories. I went back to the beginning. I put all the details together, and it's true. It's real. It's changed my life. It's changed my family's life. It's changed all my friends' life at great cost. I want you to know this truth, that what you had been taught from the beginning, you can believe it. It's more than just here. It'll change your life, and it'll change the lives of others. See, what's interesting when we think about Luke, again, you got to separate it from this big volume, this collection. Luke isn't writing the Bible. He isn't thinking, this is going to be pretty cool. 2,000 years from now, some dude named Jeff is going to be on a platform in Littleton, Colorado, and he's going to be talking about what I wrote. Wow, this will be epic. That's nowhere, and he, it's nowhere on his radar. All he cares about is he has a friend, and he has heard other friends and heard the stories and experienced it firsthand from all of them. There is something radical about this one named Jesus, and I'm a doctor. Man, I'm going to make sure it's true. It's true, it adds up. I've investigated all of it. I want my buddy Theophilus to know. He's writing a letter to a friend. Which again, that's what the story of Jesus is all about. Sharing what's changed us with friends that we love and friends that we care about. Luke's not writing the Bible. He's just writing this orderly account of the life of Jesus so that Theophilus and Theophilus' family and other friends can hear about it and be changed by it. He uh, records details all through it. In fact, one of the things that Luke records, the crucifixion of Jesus in Luke 23 He's talking about Nicodemus and Joseph. They were the ones that take the body of Jesus down and put it in a tomb. It says, then he took it down, the body of Jesus, wrapped it in a linen cloth and placed it in a tomb, cut in the rock, one in which no one has ever been laid. Oh my goodness, details, Luke. Man, he is so detailed. He's just, I'm not, I'm gonna dot every I and cross every T. I want you to know you can have confidence in this truth. And Joseph and Nicodemus are taking the body down. Why? Because they, there's something of value or, or, no, this is a risk to them. But the belief is they're so despondent, they're so disappointed because it turns out, as of right now, Jesus is a fraud. 
He isn't who he claimed to be. Jesus said he was gonna be the way, the truth, and life, and if you believe in me, you'll have eternal life. He can't even save himself. And we heard the people screaming that at him when he was on the cross. Do something. He's a fraud if this is where the story ends. It's game over, right? There's all kinds of other historical records too, not just Luke and Matthew and Mark and John that record this, Josephus and some other early historians from Egypt, from Rome, from other areas in the Mesopotamian region, all the chroniclers, if you will, they record these crucifixions where Jesus' name is in there. This is a historical, there's nothing to debate there. And if that's where the record ends, Jesus becomes a historical footnote. That's it, game over. There's no church there's no the Bible that we carry around and, and is the roadmap of our life. There's no reason for Luke to be writing a letter. There's no Christians. Why would you follow somebody who's dead in the grave? No Christ followers. There's no reason to have these accounts to pass on from generation to generation. Jesus was just, at best, a footnote, a footnote and a fraud in history. In fact, it goes on. Look at verse 50. And this is all they believe at this moment. In verse 55 and 56, it says, the woman who had come, women, I should say, who had come with Jesus from Galilee, Mary and Martha, followed Joseph, saw the tomb, saw that his body was in there, and then they went home and they prepared spices and perfumes. Why are they preparing spices and perfumes? Because Jesus is dead. And Jesus is going to stay dead. We, we, from 2,000 years later, we have this view of, oh man, these guys were heroes and they, they walked with Jesus. Wouldn't that be cool? And the stories and all the, they are nothing more than just men and women who are heartbroken, confused, and defeated right now. They are living on the run because they saw their leader just executed in a public, gruesome way. And if this is the end of the story, all they know is that this Jesus movement has been snuffed out of existence before it even started. What did I just get? I gave up my fishing. I gave up my tax collecting. I gave up everything to follow a fraud if this is where the story ends. If Jesus' story ends on a cross with a Roman crucifixion, there's no reason to have a Bible today. He's just a fraud. So why do we have a Bible today? Because he wasn't just a fraud, was he? <laughs> and that's why Luke wants to write to his friends. And he says, I've done all this extensive, costly, diligent work because this story is extraordinary. Luke and others document the life of Jesus because the story of Jesus doesn't end with the crucifixion. It doesn't end on a Roman cross. The reason we have a Bible today is because it became very clear to people like Luke and other authors and writers and others who were paying attention in the first century, there is something different about the story of Jesus. The rumors of him being raised from the dead, we got to investigate them. People are seeing him alive. I mean, the stories are being spread everywhere. This is a different story than we've ever seen. All those prophecies, they're starting to match up when we figure out what his story is. And Luke says, you've got to hear the rest of the story. That's why I wrote my account for you, Theophilus. What you may not know is Luke obviously writes Luke, but he also wrote a second book in the New Testament. How many know what's, what's the second book in the New Testament he wrote? The book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. And when we get in the book of Acts, Luke is also, Dr. Luke, Mr. Detail, he wants to chronicle the whole story of Jesus. And here's what I love. He chronicles. He's the only one that does the second volume. All the other guys who write, they write about Jesus, but he's like, I want to chronicle everything that the church, all of our friends, all of our followers, what we did as a result of, of seeing a resurrected Jesus, what it did to us. Look what it says in Acts 1. This is Luke speaking. In my former book, the book of Luke, or the letter I wrote you, Theophilus, I wrote about all the ways that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instruction through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. Luke sounds like a doctor, doesn't he? Boy, that's clunky. What he's saying is, though, remember Jesus' final instruction for the disciples? 
Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Disciple them. Baptize them. Let them know what sets them free. I will be with you through all this. How? Through the Holy Spirit. I'll empower you. I will be, you will be my witnesses across the world, it says in Acts 1-8 later in this chapter. Luke is saying this story and everybody who was despondent and desperate and defeated, everybody who was just brokenhearted because they not, saw not only their friend but their leader die and executed this in this gruesome, ugly way, they had scattered, they had hidden, run for their life. All of them begin to come out of hiding. All of them come back together. And it says in verse three there of Acts, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs to all of his followers that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. I love that Luke adds that. He didn't just appear to them. Like maybe I saw a vision or I saw a ghost or something kind of floating in the room. No, he begins to speak with them. He begins to have conversations with them. They ask questions about what's happened. He has a dialogue. He even says, hey, come on the shoreline. Let's eat dinner together. He eats with them. He says to his followers, I got wounds everywhere. Come and see. That was me on the cross. No magic trick. I shouldn't have survived this. I don't survive all this. Jesus gives convincing proof that he's alive. And Theophilus, you gotta hear this. You gotta hear what starts to happen as a result. And over a period of 40 days, he speaks about the kingdom of God, that the story didn't end on the cross. In fact, that's just where it began. Because of the cross, lives can be changed. Kingdom of God is built. And you guys are gonna go and be my witnesses. He was seen alive, not just in spirit. He preached, he ate, he interacted with them. And as a result, all of his followers who had just scattered and betrayed and been scared to death, they begin to come out of hiding and they boldly begin to preach. They preach the very same, get the, don't miss this. This is to me one of the most convincing things of the validity and why I believe the Bible and why I believe the truth of who Jesus is. These ones who had seen him executed and die, scattered, they're just brokenhearted, they're just despondent. What a fraud, I don't get this. I gave up everything for him and he's gone. They see the resurrected Jesus and what do they do? They saw him crucified, they go and preach the very same message he was executed for because that's worth dying for, that's worth believing. They go and they scatter like crazy. They now boldly preach the same message to some of the very same men who arrested Jesus. In fact, there's an example in Luke, uh, Luke's uh, record in Acts chapter two. Peter is before Caiaphas, the high priest. Who's Caiaphas, you might ask? Well, Caiaphas is the one who was ruling over the unfair trial of Jesus. If you go back into the Gospels, Jesus faces this unfair trial. Somebody has to say he needs to be executed. It's Caiaphas. Caiaphas says he's been blasphemous. He claims to be God, which he was. He's been blasphemous. He says, if you kill me or you know, tear down this temple, I'll be raised again in three days. And he was. But Caiaphas doesn't care. He didn't know all this. He's just, he needs to be executed, convince the Roman leadership to execute him. That same Caiaphas appears in Acts chapter 2. And Peter says to him, God raised Jesus from the dead, and Caiaphas, looking boldly in your eye, we are all witnesses to this. Read it. Read Acts chapter 2. I mean, he goes face to face with the very guy, who the Peter guy who was sitting there and denied Jesus three times, like swearing, I don't even know who he is. He was so transformed by the resurrected Jesus that he will boldly preach the same message that his leader had been executed for. That's life change. That's pretty powerful, Yeah. And that's what Peter's doing. And that's what all these guys start doing. They go across nations. They go across cities. They go across any and every barrier they came, if they could. Luke knows all these people. He knows Peter. He knows Andrew. He knows the apostle Paul. He's going to travel with him. He knows John Mark, who writes the gospel of Mark. He knows James, the brother of Jesus. He gets all of their stories and puts them together so that you and I 
could have this letter. He didn't even, he had no aspirations that someday we would have this, but we do. Because something was different, something was extraordinary about Jesus. And it had changed people around him and it changed him so much, he knew generations to follow needed to hear it as well. Why record this? Why the multiple accounts during a time period when it was extremely expensive and it was extremely dangerous? Every one of the authors who would write these accounts would ultimately die because of their refusal refusal to stop preaching the gospel of Jesus. Why do all this? Why the multiple accounts? Because something extraordinary had happened. Something that history had never seen and never will see again. Something that had extraordinary happened in Jesus. And it changed them. And they knew no matter what it would cost, they had to get the word out because it would change others too. This message of Jesus had to persevere for generations so that those centuries later who would follow would have an opportunity to hear the same story of this one named Jesus. And they paid the ultimate price for it. Under constant threat to their life, they continued to do all they could to write and scribe and handwritten copies to pass from village to village to village. And about 250 years later, all of these letters are compiled, and we'll talk about this in weeks to come, and they're put together into what we call our Bible today. There's a, I'm a Star Wars fan. We've talked about this a little bit before. I don't know if you've seen the movie Rogue One. I think to me, it's uh, Garrett's going to disagree with me probably on this, but it's the best Star Wars movie out there. Rogue One is my favorite. And if you haven't seen it, it's been out too long, so any spoiler alert I'm about to do is on you. But um, towards the end of the movie, cover your ears, children, if you don't want to hear a spoiler and you haven't seen it. But towards the end of the movie, our first picture of Darth Vader in the, you know, uh, at the end here, and I mean, it's like the sirens are... Rawr, rawr, I mean, it's just a terrifying, awesome scene. I mean, if you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. Darth Vader, the enemy, is coming in. And what they've done is they've got the plans. And what the, part of the reason I love Rogue One so much is nobody is in it for themselves. And they're all going to pay. There's nobody that survives. There, there's no more story after it. And they're doing everything they can to get the plans. What plans? It doesn't matter if you don't know the story, but the plans for the Death Star, whatever, whatever. But they're doing everything they can so future generations will be able to survive. And you see this scene, and I mean, it seems like it's by the dozens almost. Darth Vader's coming through. He's the enemy. He's throwing them with the force. He's hitting them with his lightsaber. He's ricocheting their, light, their saber bullets and all that kind of stuff going through. And all they're doing is they're like throwing and passing the plans. They're doing everything they can to get it to the next guy, to get it to the next guy, to do everything. They can get it through a door that all he can get his arm through. I'm not going to survive, but make sure this survives. And man, the spiritual, this is what these guys were doing. Every single one of them just, I'm not going to survive this. I don't know if this letter that I just wrote to you, Theophilus, will make it to the end of the week, but I'm going to do everything I can to get it to you because this story will change the world. They, they all do this at great cost to themselves. Luke writes this to his friend, and we're reading it today. Church history records that he was hanged from an olive tree because he refused to stop preaching who Jesus was. The other gospels, the gospel of Mark it's, it's, it's believed to be almost as much verbatim as he could get out of Peter. Peter was a fisherman. Peter was no doubt illiterate, couldn't write, couldn't read. He could just talk. And man, did he talk. And so he gives all these stories. He's like, John Mark, you're a young kid. Let me tell you about Jesus. Get this down. It's, it's fast-paced. It's action-oriented. It's get to the point, bottom line. And it's an amazing book to go. And John Mark's describing it as fast as he can. John Mark was executed, speared through. He went to Ethiopia and was killed. Peter, we know his story. He dies bare, or hung upside down. He refused to be crucified like Jesus was right side. So he's hung upside down and crucified upside down because I don't want to be crucified like my Savior was. Only he was worthy of that. Do me the other way. And he did. 
You get to Matthew, Matthew's story, Matthew's gospel, his account is for first century Jews who it's like, guys, if you're paying attention, you have the Old Testament, all the law and all the prophets, right? There's over 300 prophecies about the Messiah. It's Jesus, here's the one. And he keeps calling back to prophecies and passages from the Old Testament, trying to build this case for for a first century Jewish community to say, this is what we've been looking for. He's the answer, he's the way, the truth, and the life. History records that um, he was killed in um, Alexandria in Egypt. He was speared through and beheaded because he refused to keep preaching who Jesus was. Uh, John, John the last one, John the gospel that he writes, it's so unique, it's so beautiful. He gives this personal, I'm sitting next to Jesus at that last supper scene. I'm the one that put my head on his shoulder and just, I'm the one that he loved. I mean, man, we were, I gotta tell you about Jesus, so let me give you my account. And he starts writing down, John's the last one that's written, and he starts telling stories. John's is so unique because he talks about the essence of Jesus. More than his miracles, he doesn't talk about any parables that Jesus told. He just talks about Jesus came from heaven and he was, this one, he, he, he comes into our neighborhood, basically. He becomes part of our family, our community, and he was full of grace and truth. I don't know how to describe. He was the essence of all of this. John would write down that God so loved all of us. I was, I was eavesdropping on his conversation with Nicodemus once, and Jesus said, God so loved the world that he gave me his only son so that if you believe on me, you can have the eternal life that I'm gonna offer. And John gets it down. I remember Jesus, I gotta get this down for you. Whatever it takes, just passing it on from generation to generation so that you and I could have all these. They had no idea, no aspirations that what they would write would become famous someday. They gave their life for it. It wasn't about them. They just knew that something extraordinary had happened. And no matter what the cost, both financially or personally or reputation or anything, it was worth it to get this in the hands of the generations that would follow. There's a... um, there's a uh, second century early church father named Tertullian who talks about the fact that the people of Rome, Rome was over Israel at this time. Roman soldiers, they crucified Jesus, Caesar, you know a lot of that story if you know that. For, for, for quite a while, Rome was still over Israel and oppressing them. And the interesting thing about the people of Rome was they were uh, very superstitious people. Uh, Stevie Wonder, long before Stevie Wonder, they were, they, were, they were the one that coined that and he stole that, but... They were very superstitious. And the thing that was, they didn't, they didn't have a problem with who Israel did worship or who the, the, the New Testament church did worship. They didn't have a problem. Worship Jesus. We don't care. We just want, we have a problem with who you refuse to worship. All we're asking is pay a little offering, pay a little grain to Caesar, pay a little offering to all the other gods because they were superstitious because like today, when something starts going wrong, that must mean the gods are upset and go any, a lot of places in the world and that's how they behave still. If things are going really good, what are we doing right? Because the gods are happy. Well, the Romans were very superstitious on that. And so they, they were asking the same thing of the people of Israel. We're not asking you to just stop worshiping Jesus, weirdos or Yahweh, whatever it is. Just worship our gods as well. Pay the offering. Acknowledge that Caesar is Lord. And they refused. They kept refusing to do it. And, and for, there would be little uprisings of persecution that would take place. And they would be keeping making copies and passing this around secretly, trying to get the word out. This is from John. Get the word out. Running to the next village. You're not going to believe we got a copy of this. And they'd sit around the fire and, hey, I, one of the guys can read. Let's try to read. What, this is the story of Jesus. And it just kept spreading from village to village and city to city. And it got so bad that it kept getting the attention of the Roman Empire because, again, they're superstitious. Things were going really bad in Rome. So it must be these Christians who are spending the, uh, the story of who Jesus is. 
And so the worst one that ever happened, the worst persecution they faced was Emperor Diocletian. The Emperor Diocletian, and in the year 303, he unleashed what was probably the most horrific, if you've read the Fox's Book of Martyrs or if you're familiar with that, the most horrific persecution that went on Christians like up until that time and maybe ever. And what he did was he determined it's the Christian's fault that the gods are upset. And because the gods are upset, the rain isn't coming, earthquake. In fact, there was a, Tertullian had this quote. We'll throw it on there just so you see from his uh, book, Apologetic, or, uh, Apology. Um, if the Tiber River floods the city, or if the Nile refuses to rise, if the sky withholds its rain, if there is an earthquake or a famine, at once the cry is always raised, Christians to the lions will execute Christians. It's their fault because the gods aren't letting the waters fall or the gods are causing the earthquakes or, or pestilence or famine or whatever it is. It was their fault making the gods upset because they were refusing to offer worship to them. Why? It's Jesus, something extraordinary. This is the way, the truth, and the life. That's all we could do. So in 303, he unleashed this horrific persecution and he dictated that every house of worship had to be destroyed. Um, all Christian gatherings or assemblies were illegal and you would be, uh, immediately be executed for doing what we are doing right now that we can barely get people to get their butts out of bed to do on Sunday mornings anymore in this world. We'd be executed for this today. Um, you would have to cite Caesar as Lord as you would have to go and make an offering and if you refused to, you'd be executed and you had to turn in, probably the most painful one of all for them was they had to turn in and destroy all Christian literature. Any copies of John or Mark or any of these literature, these stories, these accounts of who Jesus was, they had to turn them in and have book burnings or scroll burnings, whatever it was, and turn them in. And if they refused to, you would be martyred and it would be in this order. If you refused to, we would execute your children in front of you and your children in front of you and your children in front of you until you would say yes. We would execute your spouse in front of you and ultimately we would execute you in a very painful way. And friends, I'm telling you, Man, look it up. Look at the stories. Thousands of people in that first and second and third century gave their life. Rogue One-esque. Hollywood can't even compare to the story of why we have what we have today. Just passing it on, knowing I'm going to give my life at stake. I'm going to give my life to the lions. But make sure the next generation gets this. Make sure the next generation gets that. Because 2,000 years later, it's going to be people like us that are going to be We've had this since Sunday school. We know the stories. I can sword drill. I can tell you where it's at, and it's all right here. But when the world's crashing around me, I need something to anchor onto. Hey, we found it. It's him. He's the way, the truth, and life. Anchor to him. That was their dying words, their dying breath, their dying wish was just to pass it on from generation to generation. And when you go into the book of Hebrews, and the author says, we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, that great cloud of witnesses paid a crazy price for you and me to be able to know the story that they died for and believed in. That's why we have the Bible today. Because guys like Luke and John and Matthew were willing to pay ultimate prices. No personal gain, no personal agenda, no personal recognition. It cost them everything, more than what we probably will know until eternity. And then we wove them all together and we took John and Matthew and Mark and different copies and we'll talk about this more next week, but they put it all together. And we put together Te Biblia, the Bible. There's authority, there's power, there's something that's earth-bending and life-changing in these books. That's what we have today. Thanks for listening to this week's message. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We invite you to connect with us. If you'd like to give to this ministry, you can do so at welcometomosaic.com slash give. Have a great week.